there we go. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Okay. Sorry, folks. Uh, these, this is just a summary of the basics. Uh, on January 23rd, 1870, about 380 troops in the 2nd Cavalry stationed at Fort Ellison, Bozeman, supplemented by some mounted in infantry from Fort Shaw uh, on the Sun River near Great Falls, attacked Heavy Runners Village early in the morning, killing 173 Indians, which is the official count. But as you'll learn uh, as we talk, there were probably many more. Uh, Heavy Runners Village was the wrong village. They were after the village of Mountain Chief. The village had smallpox, and the temperature was well below zero. Uh, this, I, this is the cover of the book, but I want to pay particular attention to the circle of rocks here. There are 217 rocks in this circle, and uh, these rocks were placed for the annual commemoration of the massacre uh, held by the Blackfeet tribe. Uh, 217 is the account that they have accepted, and that was uh, a count taken by Joseph Kipp after the massacre. Uh, other counts vary. The army was stuck on 173. So. Uh, the commemoration is held, has been held every uh, year for a few years now. I don't know how many. So, well, since the 70s, but the picture that's on the front of the book uh, was a 2010 picture. Every four years, they also visit the site. Uh, I was honored to be the featured speaker at the Blackfeet Community College where they had the start of the commemoration. And the folks pictured there are from your right to left, my son John, my son Thomas, who you, you may see on CBS. Yeah, uh, may see on CBS uh, television. He's the sports director in Great Falls. His wife, Deanna, my wife, Arlene, uh, Dr. Billy Joe Kipp, the president of Blackfeet Community College, who was in charge of the ceremony. Brenda Johnston, who I've known for some years, teaches in Browning at the Blackfeet High School, and she is currently doing a study on comparing the effects of the massacre on the tribe with the effects of the Holocaust on the, the Jewish people. And uh, uh, I've known her for, for some time, and she gave a great talk, and then me on the end. And I won't say I gave a great talk, I showed up. Uh, this is just a snapshot of the commemoration. It's 70 miles from Browning, uh, south of Dunkirk, which is a little east of Shelby, and then down some country roads to the uh, Marias River Valley. Um, this was the 2010 commemoration ceremony, just, just more uh, commemoration pictures. Um, just to, to orient uh, a little on this, um, the, the massacre was right about in here, say. Uh, this is a map covering the fur trade in the area going way back to the 1700s. You'll see up in Canada the fur trading forts were established in the 18th century. And uh, in 1806, I'd, I'll just quickly point out Camp Disappointment, that's where Meriwether Lewis had separated from William Clark and gone up the Marias River to try to find the northernmost point of a tributary feeding into the Missouri. 
that would uh, theoretically have marked the upper boundary of the Louisiana Purchase. He was up there in July and couldn't get a reading on his sextant for about four or five days, and they finally turned around and had to come back. Um, these days in July, we don't have much cloudy weather, but apparently they did then. Um, they uh, did encounter a small band of Pagan Indians, and I, just to, uh, for those that don't know, the Pagan tribe and the Blackfeet tribe were basically the same. The Blackfoot tribe is in northern, is in Canada, but the uh, official name was changed to the Blackfeet tribe, I think sometime in the early 1900s. I'm not sure just when. So it is the Pagan Indians that are in Browning, for the most part. Um, they, they encountered this group, and Meriwether Lewis and his, his um, small group that was with him killed two young braves of the Pagan tribe, and that apparently has been remembered to this day in, in the Pagan uh, oral traditions and in histories written by other people. I think David Thompson was afraid to cross down into this territory when he was trying to find a way to the Pacific Ocean because uh, the Indians were retaliating against that killing, and that was about a year later. So it, it was a small event in, in some, some scales, uh, in some it was larger. Um, then the others, uh, uh, I'll move on from this because I, I just wanted to locate the area we're talking about. This is a, a picture done by Kingsley Kuka, who was a Blackfeet artist who died in 2004. And it's really the only image I can find done by anyone that would depict what Heavy Runners Village might have looked like. Notice the bluffs over, overlooking the village. Uh, this is a, a 1990 photo somewhat in the same area. It's a little hard, as plain as it seems up there, it's a really a little hard to find out what is what and where is where on the Marias River Valley. And one of the reasons is the flow of the river has changed over the year. Uh, there's been a lot of flooding. Um, it is theoretically part of what could be a black backwater for Lake Elwell, which is backed up by the Tiber Reservoir, but the water has never reached quite this far up. This is uh, Colonel Baker and his, his officers at Fort Ellis. This photograph was actually taken after the massacre. Oh, sorry, go back. Um, this is Baker right here, uh, leaning against the porch rail, almost as though it was holding him up. Uh, he did have a reputation for drinking, and uh, uh, it, it's not just a casual reputation. It seems to have been mentioned far too many times not to have had substance. This gentleman here is uh, Second Lieutenant Gustavus Cheney Doan, and he was in charge of Company F, which, which is shown here. Uh, he was actually the third officer of the company and the youngest officer of the troops that went up on the massacre. There'll be a little more about him later. Uh, the, the troops started out in early January in, at Fort Ellis and made eight camps and arrived at Fort Shaw on the 14th, and they left on January 19th. 
and then they eventually made it up to the massacre site on the 23rd. At all of this time, the temperature had been below zero, uh, sometimes 40 below zero. And it was just a long, long cold snap, probably the opposite of what we're having here now in Montana in February. Um, we'll get back to this map, but the troops were actually two days late. They'd planned to get up there two days earlier, and I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, I'd like to now just read from the book, uh, uh, the prologue, so we can see what, what the setting was. Uh, this is from the book. As the sun came up, the cold air full of ice crystals created a large haze over the snowy winter landscape on the Marias. Immediately below the high ravine-broken bluffs to the south stood a scattered grouping of Indian teepees with cut underbrush stacked around their bases for protection from the snow and wind, settled in among the stark and leafless cottonwoods, aspens, and willows on the river bottom. Most of them were on the south side of the frozen river, but some were to the north. As the sun came up, Chief Heavy Runner and his tribe of Pagans, mainly women and children and old men, were still in their lodges. It was not their custom to rise early. Many of them were sick with smallpox, which was spreading through the band. The able-bodied men were away on a buffalo hunt. Even in the numbing below zero weather, they needed the meat for survival and the buffalo roads with their long winter fur to trade for white man's goods, including whiskey. As cold as it was and as remote as the camp was, Heavy Runner knew that the U.S. Army might be coming after the band of Mountain Chief. Seeking revenge for the murder of Malcolm Clark and the other crimes of the band's young braves, Heavy Runner did not fear the Army. Only three weeks before, he had gone to the agency on the Teton with all the other chiefs to meet General Alfred Sully. The whiskey traders had arrived in the Pagan country just before, and the chiefs, who were not too inebriated to meet with General Sully, were told that they would be protected if they brought in the murderers, dead or alive. Although Heavy Runner promised to do this, not even Sully expected that he would. Because Heavy Runner had been peaceful, Sully gave him a document that would protect him from the soldiers. Heavy Runner did not know how, but he did know that the army would be after Mountain Chief, who had moved his band down the Marias the day before when the fur traders warned that the army was coming for them. As Heavy Runner's village came slowly to life, a few, few smoldering fires were kindled. Smoke started to rise in the air. At first, only a few engines ventured, ventured outside. They were unaware that they were being watched. Had they looked to the top of the bluffs above them, they might have seen 2nd Lieutenant Gustavus Cheney Doan and his cavalry reining in their horses and dismounting to get a better look down from the bluffs. The soldiers had been on the trail for several days, traveling at night to avoid detection. Their commander, Major Eugene Baker, had become too inebriated to lead and would not believe it when his half-blood guide said that they were on the wrong trail. Baker ordered Doan and the others to continue on down the trail that he was sure would lead to Mountain Chief's camp, where it had been known to be a few days before. Doan's orders when he got there were to surprise the Indians and strike. The same instructions had been relayed a few days earlier in Lieutenant General Philip Sheridan's telegram. Tell Baker to strike them hard. The order had to be obeyed. When Doan reached the bluffs above Heavy Renner's camp, his ride was at an end, for it appeared 
that he had found the village that he was looking for. And we'll now um, have a, um, another selection from the book, and th this is frankly very distressing. And I've asked my wife Arlene to do it. Uh, she, she reads very well, and uh, uh, what more can I say? Thank you. <laughs> In the stillness of the morning, Heavy Runner's sleeping camp was doomed. The soldiers were there now, on his edge, ready for the kill. It would have been a perfect time to take prisoners, but that was not an option for Baker and his command. It certainly was not for Lieutenant Gustavus Cheney Doan, who in his own mind was on the brink of renown as an Indian fighter. He also knew he had instructions that had come all the way from General Sheridan through Colonel Baker to strike them hard. Baker's policy was, nits make lice. Corporal Daniel C. Starr of the F Company said he knew that that was the customary way of indicating that children were not to be spared. And with this general extermination idea impressed upon the troops, they were ready for the annihilation of the camp which they thought to be Mountain Chiefs. Good Bear Woman was Mountain Chief's 29-year-old daughter, but instead of being in his camp, she was with Heavy Runner's camp at the time. <clears throat> she observed the soldiers steadily approaching, and she could see Chief Heavy Runner come out of his lodge, go to, the meet and go to meet the commanding officer. Heavy Runner handed over some papers, which the commanding officer read, and then he tore them up and he threw them away. Good Bear Woman then saw Heavy Runner turn about face, and she believed the soldiers fired upon him and killed him. Meanwhile, in the main village, several men of Doan's command walked unafraid towards the teepees. Cor Corporal Isaac Etheridge went in front of the lodges and fired into the doors, careless of the danger to his own life. Doan watched as he three times dropped Indians who had bows presented within a few feet of him with arrows draw drawn to an aim. But Doan saw that Etheridge was a splendid shot and killed several. Doan reported that Private Mullis of the cavalry fought in such a desperate manner that he killed alone and unaided by his comrades, 20 Indians. Private William Berth, 21, was close enough to observe the lodges, and he said he was surprised the Indians did, did not fight when he came upon their camp. The Indians, saw, the Indians that Berth saw were all too sick or too frightened to fight. And he said they only, quote, sticked their heads out of their tents and then went back and laid down and covered up again. Without much hesitancy, Berth and the other men started firing into the tents. Even as the, as the shots were being fired into the teepees, Berth said, still they would not return the fire. The soldiers around Berth became emboldened and unafraid of any kind of armed resistance by the Indians. So they went up to their tents and they took butcher knives and they cut open their tents and shot them as they lay under their blankets and buffalo robes. But that was not enough and Berth and his companions killed some with axes. The ghastly event was beyond description, but one observer reported, and I am quoting now, the scene now presented was one of frightful reality. The hide-covered lodges were ripped with knives by the soldiers, and many a bullet passing through the opening thus made laid low the braves within. The uproar was deafening. 
The sounds of the firearms, the yells of the infuriated soldiers, the yells and death cries of the redskins, the barking and howling of the Indian dogs, all mingling made the scene of one of terrible interest. Anon, kegs of powder carefully stowed away in several of the lodges would explode and kill the inmates. Here a savage would spring out with a rifle in hand, but only fall in his tracks. Their resistance would be made, but the well-directed shot soon caused the effort to cease." End quote. A young pagan boy, only about seven years old, was hiding out in the brush when the attack occurred, and he remained hidden while the old men, women, and kids were killed. He witnessed young babies being slung by their heels and heads bashed on rocks. Terrified, he was able to run from the camp in the cold winter and cover about 70 miles to safety near the Rocky Mountains where he was taken in by a white family who later adopted him. Killing the defenseless pagans was too cruel for some of the soldiers. Henry Dew, 29, a private in G Company under Captain S.H. Norton, had been ordered to use a poleaxe and kill some Indians that were captured during the battle. He could not stomach it and instead he crept, crept out of camp and disappeared into the night, only to rejoin the, rejoin the company later. Buffalo Trail Woman was 22 at the time of the attack. When her husband, Goodstab, also known as Yellow Owl, realized what was taking place, he prepared for war. But as he was making his way in the open to his mother's lodge some distance away, he was shot and wounded, but he made it to his mother. When Buffalo Trail Woman found him mortally wounded, in his mother's lodge, he asked her for a drink of water, but a soldier came along and pushed her to one side and shot him dead. She herself was wounded on the back and on her left ear, and she saw how others in the lodge were shot, including an old man who had drug, dug a trench near the pit as a kind of a fort. Tom LaForge, a 19-year-old civilian, was there, and he had seen enough and was trying to get away when he found a young squaw hidden in the brush nursing her baby. As he approached, she jumped up in great fear, making signs saying, wait until my baby gets its fill from my breast, then you may kill me, but let my baby live. I give it to you, holding the infant out towards him. LaForge said he was unable to do anything other than turn away and ignore her. When he again passed the thicket, he saw the dead bodies of both the mother and the child. Not all the Indians who died that day were killed immediately. Corporal Dan Starr saw that eight warriors were taken prisoner, and afterwards they made attempts at escape. After the recapture of two of them who had tried to slip away, the officer of the guard lost his temper and issued a simple order, kill them, every damn one of them. As the soldier guards began to get their guns ready, the order came to get axes and kill them one at a time. Starr himself was one of the axe murderers. Thank you, Arlene. Um, the, these stories were, were nothing I made up. Uh, they are recorded in history. Um, I, I see two seats. There's one right here. Okay, and it looks like there's one back there in the middle of that row, and there's one in the, the back row, if you're, if you're interested. Okay. Uh, the, these gentlemen are, are known in history. Uh, Father DeSmet was a Jesuit missionary that came out to live amongst the Bagans 
in the 1840s, and Alexander Culbertson was the chief fur trader for the American Fur Company since about the 1830s, and they had great influence with the tribe. Uh, about 1851, the government decided that the fighting uh, between the Indian tribes, between themselves, was too much of a problem for transportation across the prairies, so they uh, authorized a peace council at Fort Laramie in Wyoming in 1851, and this is a copy of the map that DeSmet had drawn up. Um, it gives, it's a little hard to see, but this is the Blackfeet territory here. The map is on its side. It, it, it uh, doesn't reproduce very well the other way. Here, here's the territory that was given to the Blackfeet, and this is part of the problem. Uh, it started up here on the Missouri River, and it went all the way down, and then followed the ridge of the mountains way down into Yellowstone Park, and way down into the headwaters of the Yellowstone River, came back up the Yellowstone River, went up the Shields River, which was then known as 25 Yard Creek, uh, to the source of the Muscleshell River and all the way down the Muscleshell River and back up to the point of beginning, wherever that was. And this was the original uh, territorial lands uh, given, uh, set out as a reservation for the Blackfeet. Of course, it didn't work very well. And uh, we find ourselves much later, uh, after an 1855 treaty that uh, re-proscribed the lands for the Blackfeet, and then an 1865 treaty that was never ratified, and then a, a, a seldom-mentioned 1868 treaty that was never uh, ratified that had the same boundaries as the 1865 treaty. Uh, the point is that at the time of the Marias River Massacre, the Blackfeet really didn't have a reservation they could go to. And this was, uh, the problem was caused by General William Tecumseh Sherman's policy at that time, which was if Indians were in the, on the reservation, they were safe. If they were off the reservations, they, they could be attacked or eliminated. Uh, the Marias River Massacre uh, really wasn't on the reservation that had been proscribed even in the 1868 treaty. Um, I'm going to go back here. Um, as, as we get into the 1860s, the, these are the principal transportation routes uh, in, into the territory. There, there's another one, and I have an updated map on this. It's in the book, actually, and that's the Mullen Trail uh, going over this way. It wasn't a major immigration route. But the Bozeman Trail had been established by John Bozeman, and this is in the early 60s as uh, the gold rush had started in Montana and gold miners were flooding into Bannock and then to Virginia City and then to Helena and then to Diamond City principally. Uh, the John Bozeman set out this trail coming from the North Platte River and in uh, December 1866 uh, the Fetterman massacre occurred here at Fort Phil Kearney and 90 soldiers were lured out of their uh, fort by Indians and massacred. Word of that reached Montana in January of 1867, and it started to inflame the uh, 
the citizens uh, with fear of Indian attacks. Then, uh, in April of 1867, John Bozeman was killed on the, his own trail, the Bozeman Trail. He was with a partner um, uh, or a companion, um, Thomas Cover, at that time. And they're still debating in Bozeman a lot on who killed John Bozeman. And we have programs, we have plays, we have all sorts of things. Surprisingly enough, the usual person accused of killing him was Thomas Cover. And then there's another theory that Malcolm Story may have been involved. Uh, there are several different theories. But back then, in 1867, uh, this man, Mountain Chief, who was the, the man that the troops were after when they went to the Marias, uh, became somewhat prominent in the press. And here, here's John Bozeman and, and, of course, Mountain Chief. And here is what it said about John Bozeman. Or, I'm sorry, about Mountain Chief. It said, uh, Mountain Chief, his two sons, two nephews, renegades from the Blackfeet who were expelled from their tribe for killing Little Dog, uh, uh, are the, these are the five Indians who killed Bozeman. And no one to the, in this day and age, I think, thinks that Mountain Chief or his sons uh, killed John Bozeman, but yet that was a popular theory then. So the white settlers in the territory are, of course, being treated to some very negative reports on Mountain Chief, who, who really wasn't in their territory at all. He was more up on the Marias, and he'd been down uh, apparently hunting with some crows when Bozeman was killed. Um, this uh, precipitated what I call Montana's first Indian war. Uh, the people in Montana got so excited that they finally decided to raise their own militia, and they thought they had the approval of, of the top general of the army, William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, this is Sherman, this is Marr, I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, caused uh, a real problem because Marr actually raised the militia. He thought he'd been authorized to raise the militia. He thought that Sherman had said that the government would pay for the expenses of raising the militia. And in fact, the record seems to indicate that that was true. And I invite your attention to the Irish General, uh, the chapter that deals with that. There's a real discussion in there about it. Uh, but in the end, Sherman said that, uh, particularly after Marr died, that it was all Marr's fault for running up this ex huge expense, which was over a million dollars, and uh, upon which the, the creditors uh, did uh, uh, get uh, a recompense of about $512,000, I think. But that was, that was big money in the time. Uh, and I said this, there are details of, of their fight in the Irish General. The thing that, that uh, I think many people didn't know is that Marr and Sherman would never be able to work together because when Marr uh, raised a volunteer uh, regiment for the Battle of Bull Run, the first Battle of Bull Run. He'd actually raised a company, but he was in the Irish Brigade that went into service and then took over as commander. Uh, after the Battle of Bull Run, Marr uh, approached Sherman and thought the 90-day enlistment for his troops were up, 
and he was going to New York and he asked Sherman, is there anything I can do for you there? And Sherman says, I'll shoot you like a dog if you leave for New York. Your 90-day enlistment isn't up until a, you know, several more days or weeks. And it was a misunderstanding of when they were recruited and when they were mustered in and so on. Again, that's in the Irish Journal. Uh, after Marr died and on July 1, 1867, uh, some generals started to arrive in the territory. The first was General Alfred Terry, and there's not much written about this, but it was Alfred Terry who came in and uh, over here, yes, yes, uh, Terry, uh, this is Winfield Scott Hancock. Terry came in and basically disbanded the militia. He gave orders that it should be disbanded and, and dispersed, and uh, then Winfield Scott Hancock came in uh, a little later, and uh, Terry had actually said, you know, Fort Ellis should be somewhere in, in the Bozeman vicinity, Fort Shaw should be on the Sun River, and so on. So we'll move on from that. Uh, now, by this time, Hancock had been in, and he had ushered in the cavalry for Fort Ellis. They'd previously been manned by troops of the 13th Infantry, who didn't ride very well. At one point, there, a captain there said he only had 30 men who could ride, and that's, that's kind of tough to cover anything in Montana without being able to ride a horse. So the cavalry came in, the second cavalry, and along with them came Winfield Hancock to arrange some things and so on. Um, uh, at a, uh, as we get on into about August of 1867, uh, the event occurred which really was the trigger point for the Marias Massacre. There, there was a lot of, of uh, uh, concern, apprehension of the Indians, but this really set it off. Uh, Malcolm Clark had been in the territory for quite some time. He'd been a fur trader for the American Fur Company. Uh, he'd been uh, uh, somewhat of a renegade all of his life himself. He'd been, uh, uh, actually uh, had an appointment to West Point out of Wisconsin and was kicked out in his first semester for fighting and dueling and a few other bad things. And then he came upriver and traded with the Indians for a considerable time, but he'd also murdered a man, attempted to murder another man. Actually, he'd murdered two people, I understand. And um, uh, at this time, in August of 1867, he he's, um, has a, a, a stage stop at the Seban Ranch you know, 20 miles here, uh, and, and uh, uh, he is visited there by his, um, his wife's brother, his brother-in-law, Pete Owlchild, who is Mountain Chief's son, and Owlchild murders him, and there's a whole story of, of the bad family relationships between Owlchild and, and Mal Malcolm Clark, but the people in Helena here thought that Malcolm Clark was a good guy. They didn't know all this past history. And this was terrible. Pete, this renegade Indian, had murdered uh, one of the leading citizens here. So this started the whole thing. Uh, uh, back again, uh, we are to this, and I'm going to move on because I have nothing more to, to say other than uh, around here was the murder, probably right about there. And I, everyone here, I think, knows the road up to Great Falls, and it's, it's right along there. So um, General Philip Sheridan was um, a, a Civil War general first. Uh, 
And uh, these, these people were all Civil War generals, Sherman, Sheridan, uh, and he was in, now in charge of handling the troops on the plains and in quelling the bad Indian situation. Um, I, I mentioned the Civil War, and I just wanted to throw in this brief slide on the influence of the Civil War because I think it did color the decisions that were made that even resulted in this massacre. Uh, that 620,000, that's supposed to say. I've, I've been looking at too much software lately, I think. Um, uh, out of which there were about 360,000 Union troops, about 260,000 uh, Confederates, and uh, approximately 2.5% of the United States population was killed in our own Civil War. Um, Sheridan was in charge of controlling the Shenandoah Valley, and he's the one that started this, this total war destruction thing. Uh, you, you don't only defeat the troops, but, but you also make the valley uninhabitable and um, drive away the people. That was supposedly a, a total war thing. And then Sherman, uh, on his march to Savannah, did the same thing. Sheridan actually did it first, uh, then, then it was Sherman, and probably Sheridan did it at Sherman's command. Um, in, at about the same time Malcolm Clark uh, was killed, these two people show up. This is uh, Regis de Trobriand. He, he was a Frenchman, and he was, uh, had become a national, naturalized United States citizen. He immigrated to the United States and uh, gotten, found himself in the Civil War as the leader of a volunteer French unit out of New York, a Frenchman. Uh, this man is Alfred Sully, and uh, he had been on the plains a long time. Uh, at one time, he'd been accused of mistreatment of the Indians, and they came almost simultaneously, but they didn't come uh, with the army uh, together. Uh, de Trobriand, the, the Frenchman, was the military commander of the troops in Montana. Sully had been transferred to the Department of Interior as the Indian superintendent for Montana, and he still maintained his commission. Uh, it was probably always planned that he would go back to the Army. But they get out here at first. Sully thought things are terrible in Montana. He's the Indian superintendent. He said action needs to be taken. He tried to raise troops. He uh, uh, called for a militia at one time to be raised with him as the commander. Uh, de Trobriand, who, who was in charge of the troops that were in Montana, and I suppose at this point there, there are about 700 of them, uh, uh, thought the Indians were peaceful enough and it was just rumor and innuendo was going around. And then they changed positions almost, almost simultaneously. Uh, if the two men had not been opposed in this political um, government context, they might have gotten along well. Uh, de Trobrian was a painter. And this is a, an oil painting uh, he did of Fort Ellis and it's currently up at the Russell Museum. They do not display it, but it's there, along with a couple of sketches he did. Uh, Sully's father was the famous portrait artist Thomas Sully, who had done portraits of presidents and uh, uh, queens and uh, was, was very well known. Sully himself did a little painting uh, in his spare time, and which they, they apparently had lots of on the plains. But they did not get along. Um, we're back now to the route that the troops took. 
to, to get to the Sun River. And I think I covered this just briefly. Uh, you know, the eight camps along the way, they're now at the Sun River. It's too cold for them to leave. And they have to uh, stay there five more days. Now, in the meantime, here's a little dotted line. And this is the route that General Sully, the Indian superintendent, took to go up to the Blackfeet Agency, which was on the Teton River at that time near Shoto, present-day Shoto, and uh, uh, to meet with the Indians. Uh, uh, it was Sully's thought that he could actually meet with the Indians and give them some sort of a time limit to bring in all the horses they'd stolen, all of the murderers of white people, uh, uh, and that they, they would do it and then, then they would have peace. But really, as the prologue mentioned, uh, the, the Indians were, were generally, uh, some of them were inebriated, and uh, only Heavy Runner showed up with another chief, and Heavy Runner was given some sort of a peace paper. And I don't know of anyone that's ever seen that, I don't know what it says, but everyone agrees, everyone agrees that he had some sort of a paper. So uh, they, the troops finally head out of the camp on January 19. Now, on uh, January 21, uh, de Trobriand's correspondence with his daughter Caroline, who he called Lena, shows that he thought the massacre had already occurred, and he proclaimed it to be a great ex uh, success. But, in fact, it hadn't happened at that time. And it indicates that de Trobriand had thought the troops would reach the Marias on the 19th, but that didn't happen. Instead, the troops uh, uh, made a, their first day of march to a camp on the Teton River on the night of the 20th, and at this time they, they start marching at night. They don't want to be detected, so they, they hid out during the day as much as you could, could hide 400 troops with a wagon train. Uh, uh, and you'll see that the second day they made a very short trip. And what, what the reason for that was, I do not know. But it certainly wasn't going to get them to the Marias. They did think they would get to the Marias the next morning, and they only got as far as a camp on the dry fork of the Marias River. This would be around where Ledger, Montana is, if, if anyone knows that. And then finally, on, they reached the massacre site on January the 23rd. Um, along the way, Baker and his guides, he had three guides. One was Joe Kipp, uh, one was Joe Cobell, uh, and the other was Horace Clark, who was Malcolm Clark's youngest son, who had been also injured by Owl Child uh, and had recovered. But he was on, on the trip for revenge. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, Baker uh, uh, got mad at the guides and sent them all to the rear and said he would take over things himself. So they finally get to, uh, there, there's a Gray Wolf's camp, and they thought this is, this is Mountain Chief's camp. It was only one or two lodges, uh, uh, just a handful of Indians. They all had smallpox, and they said the Mountain Chief's camp is down the, the way. Baker supposedly at that time, in whatever state he was in, appointed this young lieutenant, Gustavus Cheney Doan, to lead Company F down the bluffs as the lead military unit uh, headed toward Mountain Chief's camp. And of course, you know from the prologue I read that, that Doan uh, 
got the wrong camp. And instead, it was heavy runners. It wasn't mountain chiefs. So uh, how did Sully get the Indians to come all the way to the agency on the Teton near Shoto from wherever they were, probably in the Marias River south of Shelby at that time? That's a long trip in a cold winter. Well, uh, Sully had given a permit to whiskey traders to cross the Indian reservation. And um, I had to find this document. I finally found it up in the Galt uh, archives in, in um, Lethbridge. And it's not the original document, it's a copy. I just hadn't seen one before. There may very well be one here, but I, I hadn't found it. And uh, it's, it's a permit that Sully had signed. It's very much his handwriting. He'd signed it. And he'd given these, these um, whiskey traders permission to travel across the reservation lands, but they were only to take medicinal whiskey. And, and of course, you know, uh, uh, I, I think the, the whiskey traders also wound up at the agency on the Teton River. And uh, it might, might have been part of Sully's plan. I don't know. It's circumstantial, and it kind of stinks. Um, then after the fight, uh, Lieutenant Doan uh, took account um, of, of the Indians killed. And uh, it was reported into Detrobrand at Fort Shaw that there were 173 Indians killed. And when Baker filed his report almost a month later uh, after the massacre, and this is extremely late for a report. Uh, on a battle. I mean, I've, I've been all through the Civil War reports of the battles. They're usually filed the next day as a matter of routine. And so I, I think there was a little question of what Baker's report should say. And I do believe he, he wound up in Fort Benton. And as of the fall of 1869, Fort Benton had a telegraph, as did Fort Shaw. And I expect there were some telegraphs that were flowing back and forth. And of course, these are, are nowhere to be found now. It's just a suspicion of mine. Uh, Arlene and I did go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. and searched Fort Shaw and Fort Ellis files. And original correspondence is there. They are, are not organized in any, any fashion. You just have to look at the documents. And there are all sorts of reports there of a committee being selected to sell a pair of boots, um, uh, just a, you know, a commission for this, a commission for that, and so on, and just reports, reports, reports. And you get to this area from when um, uh, Baker arrived through the massacre and its aftermath, and there's hardly anything in those files. And either reports or papers were not put there to begin with, or the files have been picked clean. Uh, uh, the Bozeman Pick and Plow, which was a, a very short-lived paper in Bozeman in, at that time, reported that there were 197 dead. And if you go to Fort Whoopup in Lethbridge, Canada, which was the, the fur trading fort started by these same whiskey traders, uh, there's a big sign out in front that talks about the massacre and said there were 197 dead. And uh, Doran Durstein, I believe his name is, uh, was the the director there, and he said he didn't know where that name came, that number came from. I think it probably came out of the pick and plow. Joe Kipp, who was a guide along the, the trip, counted 217, 
and that's reflected in the number of stones that are in the circle at the massacre site. Uh, Alfred B. Hamilton was a whiskey trader at the time, and he estimated there were in excess of 300, both young and old. Uh, Sully uh, had a, a Lieutenant Pease, who was the Blackfeet agent under him, go out and talk to the Indians, he said, and he said, yeah, we'll accept 173 Indians, but only uh, uh, 20 or 30 were men, and the rest were women and children, and some of those were old men. So uh, the battle now starts in the papers on the reporting. Um, uh, the official number came down as one, 173, and it wasn't so much a quibble with that as it was how many men were killed, how many old men, how many women and children. And de Trobriand and Sully went back and forth at each other, and it's all well detailed in the book as to who said what about what, and de Trobriand tried to do some math, and he deduced that the, the, uh, there were about seven or eight uh, uh, Indians to a lodge, and that showed that the men weren't out hunting. They, were, they instead had returned because of the severe cold weather. Didn't make much sense, and Sully didn't like de Trobriand's math, so they kept fighting about it. Now, the uh, New York Times got hold of the story, and it was actually Baker's report, and um, uh, they uh, they uh, uh, took exception and started picking on the fact that uh, at least a hundred women and children had been let free on the plains, according to Baker's report. And then another report, I think, said 130 had, had been let go on the plain. Um, this is uh, um, what I have in the book about that. Uh, General Phil Sheridan, soon after the massacre, reported to General William Tecumseh Sherman the attack's complete success because only one soldier had been killed, and according to Sheridan, a hundred women and children had been turned loose. This report became public and drew the wrath of the Eastern newspapers, the foremost of which was the New York Times, which was incensed most by the report of women and children captured and released. Released to what, the Times asked, and then they answered, to starvation and freezing and death. There were survivors, uh, and one of them was Spear Woman, who was a young woman, a young girl at the time. Uh, her, her story is told in the, in the Blood on the Marias, and of course th these stories have been, been handed down, written out, uh, they, they aren't made up. Um, this is Spear Woman's story. As the soldiers had headed back to Fort Shaw, they were unaware that a small group was following them. It included Spear Woman, the little girl who stayed hidden as the Pagans were massacred in her lodge. She and her surviving siblings were with their mother, who had decided to follow the soldiers at a distance where they could not be seen. They were starving, and their purpose was to find food left in the soldiers' camps after they'd moved on. The little family group camped each night without a fire, and each morning would go into the deserted soldiers' camp looking for any scraps of food a search that yielded but bits of hardtack and bacon. On these forays, the mother had to leave Spear Woman's infant sister behind. When they returned from one of their scavenging trips, 
they found the baby girl dead in a snowbank. They continued on until they reached the top of a hill where they could see Fort Benton in the distance. They could also see a camp of friendly pagans nearby who took them in. That's just another sad story of, of the aftermath of this thing. Um, now, uh, de Trobriand and Sully were, were fighting, and the, the fight, of course, reached the press, and Sherman finally stepped in on March 24, 1870, uh, just about two months after the massacre. And this, this is what he said. Uh, this is a direct quote from his correspondence. I prefer to believe that the majority of the, kill, of, of the killed at Mountain Chief's camp were warriors. Notice he's talking at Mountain Chief still. He's not even acknowledging it was heavy runners. Uh, that the firing ceased the moment resistance was at an end, that quarter was given to all that asked for it, and that a hundred women and children were allowed to go free to join the other bands of the same tribe known to be camped nearby, rather than the absurd report that there were only 13 warriors killed, and that all the balance were women and children more or less afflicted with smallpox. And that, uh, frankly, the reports had already been written by that time. Uh, Sherman was just a little behind the ball in getting out his instructions, but I think that put an end to, there, there's a threat here. Don't write any more reports unless they say what I say they should say. Uh, this is uh, uh, Gustavus Cheney Doan's remembrance of the massacre. Uh, this was done in 1891. He'd written a letter to Wilbur F. Sanders, uh, and he says, I remember the day when we slaughtered the Pagans and how it occurred to me as I sat down on the bank of the Marias and watched the stream of their blood, which ran down on the surface of the frozen river over half a mile, that the work we were then doing would be rewarded as it has been. It's a very unedited statement, but that, that was Doan's remorse. And with that, I, I think we're done with the uh, anything I have to say, and uh, we could sure handle some questions. <laughs>